0: Well, this morning I am continuing to go through the book of Acts, the story of the early church. And we've been looking at uh, Paul's missionary journeys during this section. And so we're going to be in Acts 17, verses 1 through 34 this morning. I'm going to focus specifically on the last part where it's Paul in front of the Athenians. That's what's known known as the Areopagus, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, But we're going to kind of go a a little bit at a time. I'll give a few comments along the way before we get to that final section. So let me begin uh, just at verse 1, Acts 17, verse 1. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. Let me just stop and add a comment there. Notice, I said this last week as well, every time Paul goes to a new place, typically the first place he goes to the synagogue. He'll start in the synagogue where there's an opportunity for him to share about how the Old Testament scriptures point to Jesus. So you've already got a crowd there that believes in God, that believes in the, uh, that God's, or, God's ordained word. And so he uses that to show how the Old Testament points to Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection. And some believe And some want to kill him. Moving on to verse 5. The Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. And when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. And then they made Jason and the others post-bond and let them go. These are the sort of sections where you realize this is not something they'd be making up, right? I mean, if you were Paul, you would not be giving your life to something that's going to end up in you being like persecuted and stoned and beaten everywhere you go. He's doing this because it's true, because Jesus has died, risen from the dead, and this is how you find eternal life. And so he's willing to undergo anything in order to share that good news. And unfortunately, everywhere he goes, he does face this kind of opposition. Moving on to verse 10. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were of much more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Notice what it says in verse 11. Isn't that, isn't that a great line if you've ever heard that before? It says the Bereans were of noble character because they listened to Paul. They didn't just say, you know, this is the great and mighty Paul. They took everything Paul said and they examined it against the scriptures to see if what he said lined up. That is the way you're supposed to approach Me or listening to any other person who claims to be speaking God's words, right? You come, you listen, and you don't just say, well, it's Eric, so it must be true. You examine it. Does it line up with the Bible, with God's word? Because that is the truth. And so this is what the Bereans do. They take Paul's words, they examine it, they test it against the scriptures to make sure that what he's saying is true. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So once again, unfortunately, Paul is facing all kinds of persecution. Again, they even bring the crowd from Thessalonica to get him out of Berea. Moving on, now we move on to Athens. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens... He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. It's interesting there, isn't it? I mean, again, if you've ever been to Greece or know anything about Greece, most people go as tourists, right? They're looking at all these statues and and relics and remembrances of their ancient civilization. Paul's looking at this and seeing something completely different. He's not seeing, wow, look at these amazing monuments and statues. He's seeing it as idolatry. He's seeing it as an affront to a holy God, to the true God, all these statues to all these false gods. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him, and some of them asked, "What is this babbler trying to say?" Others remarked, "He seems to be advocating foreign gods." They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So he starts to share about Jesus' death and resurrection, and some of them call him a babbler, saying, you're just making stuff up here. It's a term that means cobbling together kind of philosophies out of pieces of different philosophies. They're just mocking him. They think he's ridiculous. But there's others who want to hear more, and they invite him to come and share at their Areopagus, this official meeting of all these philosophers. And the irony of this section, as you read it, I think, is that even though they're dismissing and mocking Paul, here we are 2,000 years later. How many Epicurean and Stoic philosophers do you know in your life? Right? All these philosophers in Greece have Gone by the wayside. All these philosophies and religions in ancient Greece and the Roman Empire are gone. Whereas the gospel that Paul preached still remains. So again, maybe it's okay if someone mocks you and says you don't believe, you know, what our culture believes. There's probably a good chance that that belief will be gone, you know, in another 50, 100 years. But the gospel will remain. So now we're up to the section I want to focus on this morning. Verses 22 to 34. This is Paul in front of all these philosophers in Athens sharing the gospel. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So you might notice... Paul's not in the synagogue here. He's not in front of Jews who believe the Old Testament scriptures. So he takes a completely different approach, doesn't he? He doesn't begin by saying, the Bible says this. Remember what it said in the book of Isaiah. Remember what it said in Genesis. He doesn't begin there at all. Instead, he takes a completely different approach that I'm going to just outline here in three points. First thing he does is that he looks for points of connection in their culture. Instead of quoting from the Bible, which they would have not believed, he starts by looking around for points of connection in their culture. He quotes two of their poets, Epimenides and Aratus. Epimenides who said this, for in him we live and move and have our being. And then Aratus, who said we are his offspring. So he knows enough of their poets that they would believe and listen to, to quote them. And then he also sees, most importantly, this altar, this object of worship, it says, to an unknown god. And he uses that. He says, aha, there's a springboard there where I can talk about god so the first thing he does is he looks out at this culture that's not going to believe the old testament scriptures they're not going to listen to him if he starts to talk the bible says and he looks for points of connection this is something that missionaries do all the time if you've ever been on the mission field do you know missionaries they go out and they try to find points of connection in the culture one you may have heard of in the past don and carol richardson were missionaries with the sawi tribe in indonesia they wrote a book called peace child And when they were sharing the gospel with that tribe, they found that as the Sawi were listening to the gospel, they thought Judas was the hero because they valued treachery in their culture. So they didn't see Jesus as the hero. They saw Judas as the hero. So they realized we're going to have to take a different approach here. And as they got to learn the culture, they learned about this concept of the peace child, that when one village wanted to make peace with another village, they would send a child who would be called the peace child. And as long as that peace child lived there would be peace between these enemy villages. And they saw in there a metaphor for the gospel, a father giving his son to his enemies to restore peace and to bring reconciliation. And they used that to bring the gospel to this tribe. That's what missionaries do, trying to find points of connection when the straightforward gospel story is not going to work. And that's what Paul is doing here. And in many ways, more and more often, we're becoming missionaries in today's culture, if you have not realized. If you're just going to go out and say, the Bible says this, the Bible says this, a lot of people are going to say, yeah, I don't believe the Bible. I don't believe the Bible is the word of God, so I don't care what the Bible says. And so it's up to us not just to be, you know, the Bible says this, but to be able to find points of connection in the culture. And then the second thing that Paul does to explain to them the God they're searching for, to find that point of connection and then find a way of pointing to God and to the gospel. So once again, Paul quotes their poets he finds this tomb to an unknown, or this statue, this altar to an unknown God. And then he says this to the men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. He affirms their spirituality, affirms that they are religious. He affirms their searching for the divine. And then he says this Altar to an unknown God. This thing that you are worshiping is an unknown. Let me explain to you. Let me tell you about this unknown God. That's where I want to focus mainly this morning. I, I, I think that metaphor is an excellent metaphor that I, I want you to take with you. This altar to an unknown God that all around us in our culture are altars to an unknown God. There are points of connection where people are believing in things, worshiping things, seeking for things without really knowing what it is. Believing in something without necessarily knowing what it is or why they believe it. It's a lot of vague kind of that unknown spirituality and worship going on. And Paul says, excuse me, Paul says, you know, I see that. I see that you are searching. And I honor that and I recognize that. Let me explain to you what it is that you're really searching for. So let me give you three examples I see in our culture of altars to an unknown God. First is this, meaning in life which the Hartford Project, you guys talked about, purpose was one of the things that was focused on. This idea that there is a meaning and purpose and significance to life is an altar to an unknown God, that there's this vague idea that life has meaning and purpose, but what is it, and why do we know that there is meaning and purpose in life? Because people all around us are going and living their lives as if there's meaning in family or meaning in work, meaning in the causes that they dedicate themselves to. But again, if the reality is if, if there is no God, if we are just the accidental byproducts of a godless evolution, the products of natural selection and random mutation, then there is no meaning in life. There is no objective meaning in life. There's no purpose. There's no significance. You're an accident. And one day you're going to die. And probably in another 50, 100 years after that you'll be forgotten by everyone. And then eventually the earth will be done away with and it will be as if none of it ever mattered if there's no god if there's no overarching story no divine presence then in the end it's all meaningless and now most people who don't believe in god would object to that they say wait a minute you know just because there's no god doesn't mean i can't find meaning in my life doesn't mean i can't make a meaningful life for myself Stephen Jay Gould, who was a former Harvard paleontologist who died a little while ago, he said it this way, we're here because, of one, because one odd group of fishes had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures, because the earth never froze entirely during an ice age, because a small and tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and by crook. We may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. This explanation, though superficially troubling, if not terrifying, is ultimately liberating and exhilarating. We cannot read the meaning of life passively in the facts of nature. We must construct these answers ourselves from our own wisdom and ethical sense. There is no other way. You see what he's saying? He's saying, listen, there's no objective meaning to life. We're accidents. We're going to be dead and forgotten. There's no real meaning to life. But don't let that trouble you. It's freeing. Because now you can create whatever meaning you want. And I think that's the way, you know, most people who don't believe that there's a God, there's kind of this, again, this altar to an unknown God that we can create meaning in life and have a meaningful life apart from God. And I'd say, yes, you can create your own meaning, but in the end, what are you doing? You're creating, you're pretending. You're pretending there's meaning when there actually is no meaning. You're making stuff up when actually, if there's no God, there's no meaning. So why is this? Why is this that we have this feeling that there should be meaning in life? Even though, again, if we're just the accidental byproducts of evolution, then, you know, do the squirrels worry about meaning in life? Do the dogs, the cats, the monkeys really wrestle with what the purpose and significance of life is? If we're just highly evolved animals, why are we so concerned with meaning in life? Because no one, not even the most militant atheist, lives as if there's no meaning, you know, lives like, there's just, it's just completely meaningless. Everyone tries to... Create a meaning in life. The reason we feel like there's a meaning in life is because there's a meaning in life. Because there is purpose in life. Because you are not the accidental product of evolution. Because you were created by God. You're created by a God who created you to love him. To be loved by him. To know him. To enjoy him forever. To glorify him. To be part of his mission to bring this world back to him. You were created with a purpose. With meaning. With significance. That's why there's this vague altar to an unknown God, this vague vague thought and belief that we have meaning, that there's purpose in life. Because you're not here by accident. You were created by God. Again, there are going to be people in your life who might not listen to the Bible and might not listen to all of that. But those in your life who struggle with meaning and purpose It's an altar to an unknown God. It's an opportunity, like Paul, to say, what you don't fully understand, let me tell you about. That, yes, there is meaning. Yes, you were created by a creator for a purpose. Let me tell you about that purpose. Second altar to an unknown God I see is this, morality and human rights. Again, most people out there believe that there's such a thing as right and wrong, that there's such a thing as human rights. Once again, though, if you remove God, this does not make sense. If there's no God, then there's no objective right and wrong. Again, you're just the product of evolution. There's no objective right and wrong, and there's no such thing as human rights. After all, again, look at the animal kingdom. Why do we accept that animals will go around killing each other and not, you know, get upset about it and say, that's wrong, throw that squirrel in jail? But if a human does that to another human, we instinctively know it's wrong. You're violating another person's human rights. But again, if we're just highly evolved animals, why? Why do we have this instinctual knowledge and belief that there's such a thing as human rights, that humans are different than animals, that there is right and wrong? Think of the secular anthropologist. Anyone ever take anthropology in college, you know? That belief that every civilization... You know is is deserves their own way of looking at the world, nothing's right or nothing's wrong, it's all relative, but then that same anthropologist struggles with how women are treated in the Muslim world, but can't figure out how to say that's wrong without going against everything they believe that we have to respect every culture and the way they do things. but they instinctively know there's some things that are right and there's some things that are wrong, or what about Hitler? What about the Nazis believing that Darwin's evolutionary theory means that there are some life forms that are inferior. That survival of the fittest means that the inferior life forms should be exterminated. We instinctively know that's wrong, right? We know that there's something wrong about calling some human beings inferior life forms and putting them into concentration camps. You know, But Hitler and the Nazis, they were just following Darwin's evolutionary theory survival the fittest, the strong survive, the weak die out. But we know instinctively deep down there is such a thing as morality, there is such a thing as right and wrong, there is such a thing as human rights. Even though if there's no God, those things just don't really exist. It's an altar to an unknown God. What you are proclaiming here, let me explain to you. What you vaguely believe, let me proclaim to you. There is a God who created us in his image Why are there human rights? Why does every human being have dignity? Because we are all created in God's image. That is why there are human rights. That is why every life matters. That is why you cannot just trample on the life of another human being. And there is right and there is wrong. There is a moral fabric to the universe because it's created by God. It's not just an accident. And that feeling you have inside that there's such a thing as justice and injustice, right and wrong, it's because there is, because God is a God of justice and because one day he will put a final end to all injustice and evil. As it says in Revelation 21, 1 through 5, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will Will be with them and be their God, and He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Why do we have that belief that there's such a thing as justice, that one day this world will be just and there'll be no more injustice? Because that's the way it's gonna be one day. When God puts a final end to all evil and wipes every tear from every eye and says the old order of things has passed away. It's an altar to an unknown God. It's like Paul looking around and saying, aha, there's a connection here. They're vaguely believing in something, but they don't know why or what it is. Let me proclaim to you what it is. Meaning in life, morality, human rights, justice. It all points to Jesus. What about this one? The last one I want to share about love. Eternal love. What about love? What about that desire that you have? That someone beautiful would find you beautiful. That someone desirable would find you desirable. That someone would choose you and never forsake you. What about the desire that we have that someone would know us completely, know everything about us, and not run screaming, but would forgive us and love us and by their love would transform even the worst parts of us into something beautiful. What about that desire for unity, for intimacy, for ecstasy? What is that? It's an altar to an unknown God. It's, it's at its core, it's a cry for God. It's a longing for the God who loves you so much that he died for you when you were at your worst, who knows everything about you, And is forgiven all of it, and by his love is transforming every part of it, who will never leave you and never forsake you, who one day will unify you with his beauty forever. That is what our hearts are longing for. It's not just longing for another person, it is longing for God. It's an altar for an unknown God, this love, this desire for love. And think about it again, I mentioned Craig, who passed away this week. When you come to a funeral, does it not feel wrong? to you? That this person is all of a sudden just gone? Ceased to exist? Doesn't everything in you rage against that? That this person is all of a sudden gone? Does, does death not feel like a cruel enemy? Don't you feel instinctively that love should not end? This should not be the end of this relationship? If of give Ecclesiastes 3.11, where he writes, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Again, remove God and, and, and death is the end. Eternal life, it's love, it's all, it all ends. Every person you love is going to die and be ripped from you or you are going to be ripped from them. And that's how love ends for everyone. But there's something instinctive that we know it's not the end. There is more, that death is not the end. This is how Carl Jung put it. Death is indeed a fearful piece of brutality. There is no sense pretending otherwise. It is brutal not only as a physical event, but far more more so psychically. A human being is torn away from us, and what remains is the icy stillness of death. There no longer exists any hope of a relationship, for all the bridges have been smashed at one blow. How about that, right? That's the truth. That's the stark truth if there's no God, if there is no eternity. It's just the end, the cruel end. But deep down we know that altar to an unknown God, that there is more, that love conquers death. Let me proclaim to you this altar to an unknown God. The gospel proclaims that Jesus Christ has conquered death. When he was at the grave of Lazarus, And Martha, Lazarus' sister, came and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? So for all who wrestle with that, that death should not be the end. It's an altar to an unknown God. An opportunity to proclaim to you the truth that yes, there is a God. Yes, there is life beyond the grave. Yes, there is eternal life and love that never ends. Hebrews two fourteen to 15 says, Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. In 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 13, 12 to 13, Paul says, Now we see, but a poor reflection as in a mirror, and then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain: faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. It says, on that day, when you're with him forever, you're not going to need faith, you're not going to need hope, but love is the fabric of eternity. Love is what it's all about. And so all of us who have that burning, longing, desire for love, that someone beautiful would find us beautiful, that someone would leave us I mean someone would love us and never forsake us. Someone would know us completely and not reject us, but transform us by their love. All of that is a longing for God. That the gospel makes sense of all those longings. I've used that analogy in the past in sermons about romantic comedies. You know, if you pay attention to the plot of so many romantic comedies, guy meets girl, but girl has a secret. And she's hoping the guy doesn't find out, and they're doing well, and then all of a sudden the secret gets revealed, and there's the crisis, and they fall apart, and oh no, you know, it's not going to last. But then in the end, guy realizes, even though I know this about you, I still choose you and love you, and they live happily ever after. And you look at that, and you think about that, and what does that say about our longings and our fears? It's that fear that if you knew the real me, you would run screaming, right? If you knew the real me, you would reject me in a second that longing for someone who would know us completely and love us and transform us by their love. It's an altar to an unknown God, right? Again, you pay attention to the stories, the the movies, the shows, the music, and you listen carefully and you see these are altars to an unknown God. What they're proclaiming is unknown. You can proclaim. Point them to the gospel. So the last thing he does, he looks for points of connection, he explains them the God they're searching for, and then he calls them to repent, to turn from their false beliefs to believe in Jesus. In verse 30 he says, in the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. In the end Paul doesn't preach some sort of universalism. You know what? Hey, I see you're very religious and that's awesome. You know, you keep worshiping, worshiping Zeus or whoever it is you're worshiping. You keep doing that thing and being religious. In the end, he says, no, now God's not going to overlook this ignorance anymore. That Jesus Christ lived, died, rose again. And in him is found eternal life. And now God commands you to repent, to turn from your idolatry to faith in Jesus. And as you can imagine, some people, it says a few, believed. And some scoffed at him and laughed at him. But the truth is... Hebrews 9.27, again, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, as every one of you will one day stand before God. And you're not going to be able to use your resume to say, look at all I did and the gods I believed in and all my good works. In the end, it's going to be, do you know Jesus or not? Does he know you or not? Have you trusted in him that he died for your sins? By his life, death, and resurrection, you have eternal life. That's all that we can put our trust in. So again, I just want to leave you with that this morning. This amazing passage shows us that not everyone in the world is going to respond to just a straightforward gospel presentation or the Bible says this because like the Athenians, not everyone believes that the Bible is God's word. Not everyone's going to accept that. But your mission, your challenge as missionaries in this culture is to look for points of connection in the cultural stories and what you see, to find ways of seeing them as altars to an unknown God and then to proclaim the God, and the gospel that we believe in. Amen? Amen. Let me pray, and then we're going to respond and come to the Lord's table together. Lord, we're so grateful for Jesus that somehow you came and sought us when we were lost and brought us to you. Help us, Lord, to see, like Paul did, the points of connection in our culture, the ways that we can make connections from the stories, the things that people are believing, to the gospel, Lord. More and more we are in a world that does not believe your word is true. And so help us, Lord, to be missionaries, to bring the gospel, Lord, to those who need to hear it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.